0: phone provider may apply though so check with your cell provider to make sure so ready here you go get a pen here's the number studio a is seven
1: one two four three two six nine five eight and studio b
0: is seven one six seven four eight zero one one two thank you very much for listening to revolution radio freedom slips.com the number one listener supported radio station in the world Evening, everyone. Welcome to Nightlight. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we all call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can ever guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical UFOs to unicorns and everything in between. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone, uh, except, of course, if you're in the bathroom. Anyhow, um, tonight I have the honor of having an amazing lady as my guest. Her name is, I want to say it right, Vilia Johns Urban, and she is an amazing author. She's a teacher, a former Brazilian dairy farmer owner, farm owner an expert on New England's colonial women and inhabitant of a hun- of a 1770 haunted house. She has a newly released novel called Acquiescence, which I have read. It's available all over the place. And um, it's fascinating. It's, it's just one of the neatest books ever. And when she's not touring with her highly entertaining and informative presentation, The Not-So-Good Life of the Colonial Good Wife, or on the road speaking about her book she's traveling from school to school teaching her award-winning how cool is that hands-on science programs she is what i would call with all love a free spirit (laughs) and and an amazing type of woman to have because you never know what's going to come out of her mouth or what she's going to do next so vilia welcome to the show
1: thank you very much it's quite an introduction (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, except when I turf over my own tongue. Yeah. That's oh, okay. I have a hard, a hard name, first
1: of all. You did very well.
0: Well, I, you know, I practiced. And of course, you giving me the, the, the way of saying it did help a great deal. <laughs> um, one of the coolest things is that I found out about Velia, and she lives just over the hill from me. So it's a matter of she's, she's my neighbor. And it, it was so exciting to be able to first read her book then visit the house that she talks about and then get to know her. And, and to be in the house itself that was written about was just one of the coolest things I have ever experienced. I so loved visiting the house. It was just oh, wow. amazing.
1: Oh, that's good. It that makes me feel good. Thank you.
0: Also, I loved your cats.
1: Oh yeah. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> we are animal people. Yes.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Now um, I, I, the 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 story about your house is a fascinating one but also the fact that that you have been a free spirit to the point where you and your husband did something that most people would never do and and that's uproot yourselves and take off to to an experience that you had never even experienced before, but it was a dream, and, and you not only dreamed it, you made it happen. So you want to tell a little bit about your journey from, from here to there and back again? Sure. So what happened
1: was, um, we were, my husband and I are both Connecticut natives, and we lived in Bridgewater, Connecticut for 26 years, which is a very white-bred town, and once our kids were born, um, we wanted them to realize there was much more to the world, so we started doing a lot of international traveling. And all four of us very early on knew we wanted to try living in a foreign country. However, that's not as easy to do as one might think. Um, Through a series of events, which I'm sure we'll get into afterwards, we wound up discovering the country of Brazil. And we learned visa-wise and job-wise, it's very possible to move to Brazil. So it's a very involved story. We didn't just pack up in the dark of night. This took three years of Portuguese lessons and putting our house on the market and dreaming and planning and being laser beam focused on moving to Brazil, where we were going to open a dairy farm and run an English school. However, uh, we were betrayed by a dear family friend along the way. And after being only in Brazil for only eight weeks, we had to um, leave and come back to the United States, where we, um, I guess we'd say we had to reinvent ourselves, because as I say, we'd been so laser beam focused on living in Brazil, that coming back to Connecticut was not something we had planned at all.
0: Well, I just just the sheer thought of, you, you didn't just take suitcases. You took everything with oh, you. Oh, yeah. We
1: sold our house. We um, had to go to the Brazilian consulate to get all the paperwork to bring our animals. We, we packed up our barn, our garage, our house in a 53-foot cargo container. And yeah, we, that was going to be, we were never going to um, give up our citizenship. But yeah, that was going to be the rest of our lives, living in Brazil, traveling back and forth to the United States. But yeah, that was, yeah, this was not just a... <laughs> I now, now, the decision. no
0: no you know it, what I find fascinating is that is not the kind of choice that that most of us would be brave enough to make you know it's funny because so
1: many people you know as you mentioned that I'm a teacher and I can't tell you how many times in the three years leading up to this people knew what we were going to do people you know mothers of students would stop me in the parking lot and say oh we just think it's so brave what you're doing and we, we never thought of it that way we just thought it'd be a fun experience and And why not? But but I have heard so many people say that since then, that I guess it is kind of unusual. And I I suppose it's a brave thing. It didn't go as we planned. But but that's okay. We did it.
0: Well, you know, I've I've often found that when when something is right for us to do, no matter how illogical it seems, somehow spirit gives us the courage to just go ahead and think it's not a big deal. And, you know, and, and then as you look at it in, re- in retrospect, it's like, huh, maybe that was as big a deal as everybody was saying. I guess so. You know, I don't like so many
1: people have said to me, since this all happened, you know, things happen for a reason. I don't mm-hmm. really like that expression. I think it's more like things happen and then how you deal with them is is all part of it. But but yeah, I guess I, yes, I do agree with the way that you phrased it. Yeah, I agree.
0: Well, it's it's. It's amazing. So, you, you, you got to Connecticut and you started looking for houses.
1: Yes. Uh, we got when we came, and then when we came back to Connecticut, like I, say, I mentioned in the book, the other shoe fell because then we had to deal with a lot of uh, things going on with my parents. So, yes, we needed a place to heal. So, some pretty crummy stuff had happened to us, mm-hmm. and we no longer had any hopes or dreams or goals or money, but we needed a place <laughs> to feel, to heal. So uh-huh. we found a foreclosed farmhouse in Woodbury, that in Connecticut, that had been vacant for five years. We really knew nothing about the house. We thought maybe it built in about 1850. We made literally made a joke offer to the bank. We never in a million years thought they'd accept our offer, but they did. And we moved in in the winter of 2011. And I don't know where all of your listeners are, but 2011 in Connecticut was a really difficult winter. Yes. And what wound up happening is we wound up having an ice dam. And the kitchen ceiling sheetrock got soaking wet. And when my husband Jim pulled it down, we discovered these original hand-hewn log beams. So as I told you when you're at the house, I raced off to Woodbury Town Hall the next day, traced the deed back to 1770, signed by King George III, Colony of Connecticut. And that really was the beginning. I didn't realize at the time, but that was the beginning of our healing and the beginning of the next direction my life was going to take. I didn't realize that at the time we were so, we were still so messed up then, but that's where, that's where it all began.
0: Now your website is www.
1: Thank you. And,
0: yes. and is that the site that the pictures of the house are on?
1: Yes. Yes. As a matter of okay. fact, I, we just launched a brand new website over the weekend and we have a whole um, uh, video, video of the house and, and kind of the progress of, of what we discovered. Yes.
0: Well, I, I urge people to go and take a look at this house because it is just amazing. It's a saltbox house, and saltbox houses are very, very common here in the East. Um, and but but it has such character. It's the what cross- happened.
1: I guess I should probably explain what happened next. I didn't mean yeah. to interrupt you, but um, in our wood in our kitchen there was we had a wood stove, not old, maybe from 1940s or 1950s. And in the six months that we lived in the house, I just always had this niggling feeling there was something cool behind the wood stove. So one night at dinner, I mentioned it to my family, and this is just the way they all operate. Within like five minutes, Jim went down to the basement, and he came back up with sledgehammers and pry bars and hammers, and we started knocking everything down. He came home, Jim came home the next day with a um, jackhammer. And to make a long story short, uh, we removed three tons of brick, cement fieldstone and paneling, and we found an eight-foot-wide, at least three-foot-deep fireplace with a beehive oven, and that was just one of the many things we found in the house. And there again, everything was just just a bunch of different things that happened. And let me let me back up a little bit. I, I mentioned that we're Connecticut natives, lived in Connecticut all our lives, and I had never been to the Mark Twain house before. So about six oh. months ago, I went to the Mark Twain house, and that during that trip is when I kind of got my aha moment. Because the Mark Twain house was great, but it was kind of about the stuff in the house. What I thought was even cooler was if you go across the driveway, you go over to Harriet Beecher Stowe's house. And at first I was like, oh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. But I'm so glad we went because the Harriet Beecher Stowe house, the whole point of the visit there is that it's never just one thing that happens to you. It was about all the events in Harriet Beecher Stowe's life that led her to write Uncle Tom's Cabin. And that 's when the light bulb went off for me, and I realized it was never just one thing it wasn 't being betrayed in Brazil, it wasn 't finding the beams, it wasn 't finding the fireplace, it was all everything in everyone 's life it 's a bunch of things that lead you to where it is that you 're going to wind up. Why those things lead you there i 'm not sure, and you probably have the answer to that, but, but uh,
0: <laughs> actually, actually I do um, the The spirit within is constantly sending us hints and and creating coincidences. To sort of lead us in the direction we need to go, and when someone is a free spirit like you and your family are, you take those hints and you run with them.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: Okay, and 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 so I, I do believe that there was a roadmap you brought into this incarnation, and and you're following it brilliantly. But you do it so spontaneously because of your 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 freedom of of belief and trust that. That things are moving the way they should move, so you go with it. Oh, and, okay. and I like and, that way of looking at it. <laughs> the the uh, and and when she talks about all of this tonnage they they took down, they are so spontaneous that they never thought to put tarps down or have. Well things to carry the stones in or anything like that. It was just, um, hey, well, was let's funny. Take, take it down. Yeah. I, I
1: mentioned it in the book that the very, we, the very next weekend, we were going to be having a, a humongous thank you party for all the people that had helped us after we came back from Brazil because we have met so many wonderful people. And I don't know what we were thinking, but we I guess because we were so excited, we never hung up any kind of drop cloths, any kind of tarps. We just kept knocking all this stuff down. And it took <laughs> it took probably the full, the full week afterwards to clean up all that colonial dust that we, that we encountered. But yeah, it was a mess.
0: Now, let me, just out of curiosity, the house that you sold to go down to Brazil, mm-hmm. was it, uh, you know, uh, how, how old was that house? No, not old. It was built in uh, 1956. So going into a house that was like 300 years old was quite a step.
1: It was, it was, not it wasn't because in that 1956 house, you know, we filled it with all kinds of, not expensive antiques, but antiques people, you know, we acquired along the way. So both Jim and I and the kids always had a huge interest in um, old houses. And that really was, we knew we wanted to, if if at all possible, that we'd like to live in a colonial or a Victorian house. So that was something Um, that was always a goal of ours at some point. Yeah.
0: And, and, you know, the, this house has, has character unbelievable. It it has unbelievable character. Um, the the rooms are small, lots of fireplaces, beams Mm -hmm. in the ceilings, um, low ceilings. And the floorboards are the great big wide ones with square nails in them. You know, for those of you that can't go to the website, um, it is, everything that you would picture a colonial house being and more. Yeah, that's pretty
1: true. Yeah. And And what's funny that quite a few reporters have come to the house and they kind of, most of them gotten the the story kind of wrong. You know, they say, they made it sound like we um, built additions and we made changes. And I always say to people, no, we, we didn't do anything except tear things down. We really, we really even, we haven't even painted the house, the inside of the house. We've just torn things down and exposed fireplaces and exposed. We're always exposing something. Jim has another... We have another plan with the uh, wall behind our son's room. We know there's another fireplace back there. So it's a never-ending. It's a never-ending task, but it's fun because the past is closer in an old house.
0: But you know, I think revealing history is is such an exciting thing because all of us have this this sense of being a part of history. But when you can live in it, yeah, I mean, that's that's amazing. Yes, it and is. and your daughter is into homeopathy and, and herbs and all of that kind of stuff. And for her to be able to carry on her career in a house that, that does, you know, that goes back into antiquity antiquity with her, her field of interest, which, which comes through time as well, is a very exciting thing. Oh, you're
1: absolutely right. And whenever she finished school, you know, she was wondering where she was going to open her herbalism and her flower essences and her reflexology practice. And she was going to rent a space, you know, in a nearby town. And we said, Eris, that's kind of dopey. We're right on Main Street in Woodbury in a beautiful spot. You know, have your business here. And she, as you know, she does. She operates out of one of the rooms in our house, a special room in our house. Mm-hmm. And it's been wonderful. Yeah, it's been great.
0: Now, now, at some point, you, you had a friend visit that gave you some really interesting information.
1: Yes. Should I explain some of that? Sure. Okay. So what happened was... I don't, those of you that have that have kids, well, here's here's how it goes. Our son Mick had a friend named Jill who was his best friend ever since sixth grade. And I think you know that you know your friends, you know your kids' friends, but you don't necessarily know their parents that well. So we knew Jill's mother from open houses and from concerts and from things at school, but we really didn't know her that well. Her name was Laura. I called her Laura in the book. And so one day after we had moved into this new house, I was unwrapping things and Laura came over to help me and like I say I really didn't know her and then we I was on you know bubble wrapping sets of dishes and then Laura was going to help me carry some stuff upstairs and at this point it's a it's a huge house way too big for us we didn't even know we were calling some of the rooms in the house so we we're going to carry some boxes up to another room and we we're going to enter a first floor back room in the house and Laura stopped at the doorway and she put her hands up kind of like a mime and she said they're in there. And I said, What do you mean they're in there? And she said, Didn't Mick tell you? And I said, Didn't Mick tell me what? And she said that I'm an intuitive. And I said, What the heck is an intuitive? <laughs> so then she explained, because I didn't I didn't know what any of the stuff was at that point. So she explained to me quickly was, what an intuitive was. I guess you know, another word for it is a psychic. Yeah. So she poked her head in the room and, and she goes and she said, They're in there. And I said, Who's in there? And she said, Spirits, and and then she looked in the room. And I said something like, "Like they're in there now," and she said, "Let's see." So she poked her head in the room, and she looked over in the corner, and she said, "Yes, there's a woman sitting there in the rocking chair." And then she told me to go on Why do not I just go wait in the kitchen? And she was going to have a talk with the woman, and so I did. <laughs> and looking back on this now, I was very calm about it, and I went back in the kitchen, and I was just kind of standing there. And then Jim, my husband, came home, and he had noticed, I mean, um, Laura's red sports car in the driveway, and he said, "Where's Laura?" And I very calmly said to him, oh, she's in the back room. She's, she says, we have a spirit woman back there. And he just started, you know, eating a handful of almonds and looking through the mail. So then within just a few minutes, Laura came out and she said that there's a woman in that back room holding her dead baby. And the dead baby part didn't even register with me. And she said, Velia, she has a very strong connection to you. And I was just like, kind of like, okay. And then she said, when the room was cleaned out, because it was filled with moving boxes, we had just moved in. And like I said, we are still really messed up. She said, I want to come back and do a reading. And at that point, I didn't even know what a reading was. So I just said, okay. And then she said, I want you to get a runner for that room. And I said, runner? What's a runner? And she said, one of those long rugs. I said, oh, oh Okay. <laughs> And I said, why? And then she said, so you can you can put one end of the rug of the runner in the room and then extend one end into the rest of the house. So she would feel free to wander around the house. And I was just like, OK, not really thinking like, OK, this lady's going to be wandering around her house. And that's pretty much how it all began.
0: And I, I just see again, the, the element of free spirit comes in. OK, I got a spirit and what i loved about your book and and her book is the story of their discovery of who the spirit was and and we will go into that and and the story of the spirit and how she came to be in the house and, and all of that but you've got you know was it haunted yes there was a spirit there that was staying there for a reason but but it was not you know rattling chains no, no, no. No. scratching people and so it, when when people say haunted houses everybody goes to oh my god how horrible and you have what is probably the most common type of haunting 90 percent of the actual hauntings are like yours there's a spirit that lived in the house that is still there and and you know it wasn't horrifying it wasn't scary and it wasn't inconvenient and and you didn't get you know terrified or frightened by it or attacked by it and and that's one of the things I loved about your book, because so many people have such a misconception misconception about what a haunted house is.
1: It's true, because when I do my Not So Good Life of the Conley Good Wife presentations, people, it always comes up at the end, you know, what's my book about? So I talk a little bit about it, and then I get to the part where I have to talk about the spirit woman who lives in our house, and I always say that's when I either the audience loves me or when I lose them because they either are are all excited about the idea or they think I'm some kind of whack job and you know, I, I've totally lost them. So, but you're absolutely right. And what's interesting is that Jim um, at the time, Jim was a contractor and one of his favorite things houses, his favorite things to do was work on old houses because he just Mm -hmm. always believed all of this stuff and he had never had any trouble accepting this whole thing. I called myself an ambivalent skeptic because even though I've always been a very open-minded person, it wasn't that I didn't believe in any of this stuff. I just never thought about it. But I, I have always believed that people are made up of energy, and energy can't be created or destroyed. So, as Jim said, why couldn't the energy of some woman be in our house? It's a 247-year-old house at the time. You know, sure. he, he was surprised there was only just one person. Um,
0: so, I would uh, tell about the exterminator that came to take care of the bats. Oh yeah, see that.
1: Oh yeah, that's how. Yeah, it actually, began before that. So what happened was we, when we first moved in, um, we had a dog, we still do, we had a dog named Chauncey who had come with us to Brazil and he came back to um, Connecticut with us. And we moved into the house and everything was fine for a few days. And then i probably most of your viewers have seen Lassie before, but Chauncey started acting like Lassie when we would get home and, you know, from wherever we were, Cha- Chauncey would run to the door and he made it very clear that he wanted us to follow him to some back room. So we would follow him and we would say, wow, do you think he's trying to tell us something? And, you know, and he would just take us back to this back room and he would just kind of stare at the ceiling in that room and kind of scratch at the floor a little bit and kind of bleat. He sounded like a sheep. So we never really heard anything. And then what happened was I used to start, this was still very, very early in the beginning. Like I said, we were still kind of messed up, very messed up. I used to sit in the living room and at night I used to hear kind of scratching in the ceiling up above me. And I described it in the book. It, it sounded kind of like it was hard to to picture the exact thing. It sounded kind of like rustle, flap drag, rustle, flap drag. And I never really knew what it, what it was at the same time, Chauncey was like pretty much spending all of his days in that back room, scratching at the floors and bleeding and kind of making himself and us crazy. But what would happen was that anytime Jim was around, he would never hear these noises. So still we're in about, only about, about one month into the house. Jim had a whole bunch of um, Brazilian workers that worked for him come and do put a new roof on our house. And they spent the whole day up there taking off the three layers and it was banging and pounding and things crashing around and dust settling all over the place. And there again, Chauncey was making himself crazy with all this, all this like scratching and bleeding. So at lunchtime, it got very, very quiet in the house and I was back in the living room. And all of a sudden I heard the rustle, flap drag, rustle, flap drag. So I ran outside and I got Jim And he came inside. And by the time he came in, the sound sound wasn't happening anymore. So Jim said, well, you know what? But I said, I think it didn't really sound like mice or rats. Because, you know, if you live in Connecticut, you know what mice in the wall sounds like. Oh, yeah. It sort of sounded like bats, I told him. So Jim said, "Okay, well, we'll get some have-a-heart traps. So he did. And we set the have-a-heart traps. And we never caught anything, which is kind of strange for a house in Connecticut, not even a mouse. But But the sound kept going on and going on and going on. So we were kind of convinced that we had bats. So what happened was Jim built a bat house and we put it outside the window. And then for a couple nights in a row, we sat outside the house right about dusk when bats come out. And I sat in the back in an Adirondack chair and watched the house. Jim sat in the front and we never saw a single bat come out of the house. Jim bricked up all the stuff with, uh, he put up plastic plastic netting, hoping to get the bats to leave, but then they wouldn't be able to come back in at night. Then the problem was all this noise was still going on, but it was getting close to June, which is when um, bats have their babies, and we didn't want them having babies in the house. Right. Neither did we want to kill the bats, but we finally called an exterminator just to find out, you know, what could we do? We didn't want to kill them, we didn't want that do that at all. So we found some guy in a, I don't even know how we found this guy, but we, we called him. He came over in his truck and he was um, he just kind of looked around with his flashlight for a bit, and then we all sat out on the patio. And he started, I can't remember his exact words, but he started going into this whole thing about that we lived in, the, that it was a, a multiple plane of existence and all this stuff about how, and, and, and he was doing all this talking and I was kind of kicking Jim under the table and we didn't really know what he was talking about. <laughs> so then I walked into the car, he gave me the bill, I came back, showed the bill to Jim and you know, he was like, you know, he didn't find anything. So then the noise kept happening, and I think it was the very next day we finally decided, okay, we're going to take matters into our own hands. And we found a Kanye West song, a really loud, annoying hip-hop song on our son's iPod, and we put it in the downstairs bathroom. We turned it up as loud as we possibly could, and then Eris and Jim and I, we hid upstairs for the whole rest of the night. I mean, it was so loud that it, it, we, had, we all had headaches. But I went downstairs the next morning. I turned off the iPod. And whatever that whatever the bats were, they were totally gone. So then as I was turning off the iPod, I remembered my final conversation with the exterminator when I walked him to the driveway and he said to me, have you ever seen the northern lights? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, it doesn't mean they're not there. And I went back in the house and I said, Erison Jim, I think there's something going on in this house. And that really was the whole beginning of this entire thing. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I think in the book you called it a multi-dimensional.
1: I forget what it was because he really yeah. went into this whole like tangent about, you know, yeah, he was really into it. And as I say there, there again, we were still pretty messed, very messed up. So, <laughs> but yeah, well
0: you know, moving to Brazil, finding that you didn't have what you thought you had having to come right back. Is enough to disillusion anybody and upset anybody and, and very very commonly in houses that are thought to be haunted, it's the emotionality of the people that are in the house that cause whatever disturbance is there. Oh, in your okay. case in your case, that wasn't the case. Oh, okay. So so how did you so did did your did your friend come back when you had the house cleared out so that you could find out more about the spirit?
1: Yes. So we finally got the whole, we got the whole house, you know, set up as best we could. that room, the part of the, part of the problem was that along with all this Brazil stuff, we had a lot of things going off my parents, which actually was way, way worse than, than Brazil. And my father had shipped my mother off to a nursing home against her will. We at the time, just the day before we bought the house, we um, went to probate court so I could try to become my mother's conservator so she could come and live with us. But she had given my father power of attorney, so it was ruled that we couldn't get her out of the nursing home. It was impossible to do that. So my point is this room where, this, uh, where Chauncey was doing all the scratching and where Laura saw this woman, woman in the chair, that was the room that was going to be, be my mother's bedroom. So because of that, I had a lot of trouble going into that room because I felt terrible. I felt like I let my mother down. It was just a very, very sad place for me, and pretty much we just filled that room up with junk that wasn't good enough for the rest of the house. So we finally got the room in a presentable state, and I called Laura back, and she, we had a, a big uh, sort of like small dinner party, and then w- when it was time, she and I went into that back room, and there again, I never, I didn't know what a reading was. I had no idea what to expect, but I, you know, I was open-minded about it, and we both sat down Indian style, although I should say Native American style, on the floor. And she asked me to give her something that I always wore. So I took off my fork bracelet. Our son, Mick, makes fork jewelry, and I I always wear it. I took off my fork bracelet, and she held it and kind of rolled it around in her hands. And she said things like, matter of fact, when it was all done, I wrote everything down word for word because I didn't want to forget any of this. So the way it's in the book is exactly how it happened. She said, um, don't give her any, uh, well, I don't tell you this. You know what happens at a reading. Don't give her any information, but just give her yes and no responses. And then it went on to be. I think it was. Um, I think it was a three-hour reading that she did in that room. And th- you know what happened after that? Should've, what should I? What do you want me to discuss next?
0: No, I would. I. I would, She. She told you about. Um, she gave you the spirit's name. Yes, she said her name was Susan. Uh
1: huh. Um. She said, "Okay, I'm trying to remember this. I haven't. I haven't thought about this in a while." She said her name was Susan, and that she had had two children, and that one of them had been, well, first of all, she said, did you ever know, Laura said, did you ever notice that Chauncey, our dog, never goes in the woods? And I said, you know, now that you mention it, I never really thought about it before, but in Bridgewater and in Brazil, he was always out in the woods. He was always out looking for chipmunks, and he was always doing his thing. But in this house in Woodbury, he pretty much just stayed on the lawns. He never, not pretty much, he never went in the woods. And I said, no, you never, I never thought about that. And she said that's because um, her her son was killed outside by a beast. And I was, and Laura said something about, you have to remember this was in colonial era and there were so many wild animals out there. I said, okay. And then she said she had another baby, a boy, and apparently her husband, she didn't tell me his name, her husband had gone off and while he, he was going to be gone for a day. This was in, I think it was in, I don't remember the month, but that, that when he was gone, and he wound up coming back not for months, and the baby died, and that she and the older son buried the baby. And I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think what else would be. Trying to think of. I'm trying to think of the. Think of the... Um, oh, oh, and oh, and that the spirit. Her name was Susan. She had a very mm-hmm. strong connection to me, and oh, I, that's how it started. She said when when we went and looked at the house. I think we were in the house probably not even five minutes before we knew that we were going to put an offer on this house. And it's where we wanted where we wanted to live. So we really didn't spend very much time there at all. So she said that um, Laura started the whole reading saying that Susan was very confused and she had wanted to go home with Laura the first day to find out more information. And she wanted to know why on that first day were we in the house so quickly and why did we leave? And that's when I said. To Laura, oh, that's because we knew right away we were going to make an offer. We went right, right, right back to our realtor's office and we made an offer. So that was kind of a the first kind of like interesting thing to me. And then also in the months leading up to all of this, in that room there there was this disgusting wall-to-wall rug, and we always knew we wanted to pull the rug up, but we never we were so busy doing other things we never got a chance to. So I had this kind of this um like sort of like a scatter area rug kind of rug in there that I put down on the floor. And looking back on it now, I must have straightened out that rug probably 10 or 12 times a day. It was always getting rumpled and and messed up. And I always wondered, how is this happening? No one's ever in this room. So then Laura said um, something like, Susan, um, I forget how she worded this. Like, did you wonder about the rug? And I said, yeah, I did. And she said, um, she hates the rug in here. And I said, Oh, we do too. You know, I'm sorry. I think one of the cats pooped in the corner, but we haven't had a chance to to rip the rug up yet. And she said, yeah, she's the one that's always messing up the rug. And I, and I was like, Oh, okay. And that was just a very small thing that nobody else could possibly have known. Um, that made it I don't know. That was a very small thing that's made a very like ding, ding, ding kind of thing to me. Like, wow, I think this is for real.
0: Mm-hmm. And didn't, didn't she also mention that the reason the dog didn't go into the woods was because he knew where the bodies were buried. I think.
1: Yes, yes, that her son, her that the woman's son had died out there and that he knew where the body was buried. Yes, I mm-hmm. forgot about that part, but yes, exactly, yep, absolutely right, yep.
0: And and so so I, I'm not going to tell people the very end of the book. Don't worry about it. Okay. Um, uh, hard, that's, you know, that's always what I tell people. It's, it's a hard book to talk about
1: um, without giving it all away because there, there are a lot of different plot lines in there. and Oh, no, I know right books. where
0: yeah. to stop. Don't worry okay. about it. Okay. Um, <laughs> if we can't leave them hanging really good – I haven't done my job. Right. Okay. Um, so, so what happened here is that, that you finally um, thought, huh, let me go check it all out and see how much I can find out about the house.
1: Yes. Yes. Cause and- I, I, yeah, I hadn't started my research then. Um, okay. But then I think it brought, actually, I think it was, well, I, I went back into, I went back into the living room where my, where my whole family was sitting. And I remember saying to Laura, you know, can I tell them this stuff? And which was kind of dopey. I don't know why I said that, but she said, of course you can. It's your story. So I told everyone and, you know, right away, Jim was like, Oh, we'll do whatever we can to, um, to help, to help her. And when she's ready to move on, she can. And the kids were all saying things like, Oh, wow. You know what a crummy life her kids had, but um, yeah, we'll help her too. Uh-huh. And so the next day after I kind of recovered from all this, I I went to, I started my search at Woodbury town hall and Woodbury library and yeah, I and wound up finding, you know, going to, spending a lot of time, our daughter's name is Eris, and spending a lot of time in cemeteries with Eris, much to her chagrin. But yeah, that, that was all, that's how it all kind of began, the research of it, yes.
0: I mean, you found out her last name, mm-hmm. her husband's name. Yep. And, and then you found the graves. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Yep. Which, which to me would have just blown me out of the water. And again, you know, here you're not, you're not freaked out by any of this, which I think is fantastic. And, and that you just pursued it and you accepted it and your children did as well and your husband and so I mean your whole family has to be just so mellow it's amazing Um, yeah they're we're kind of mellow and and um non-mellow yeah we're
1: mellow but we're pretty cool and we're pretty interested in all kinds of things all four of us in our different ways but yes yes that's true
0: now prior to this experience Mm -hmm. had you had any interest in the history and, and everything of colonial times? Um, yes, because initially I was, a, right now
1: I'm a hands-on science teacher, but originally I was a high school English and history teacher. So I've always been a history buff. I've always been interested in history. And so, yes, I, was, yes, I always was interested in history. Yes, I was. Yes. This just, this just kind of narrowed it down for me more on colonial, the colonial era, and more importantly to me, the colonial women. So, yeah, that just made that's what kind of made it more focused for me.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, especially when you uncovered a fireplace that you could actually sit in, mm-hmm. which, is, which is something that I don't think many people realize, that the fireplaces in the early days were really that big. They could sit around the coals and stay warm in the fireplace. Yeah, um, when I
1: first did, did my research, I, was, I read things that kids used to sit on benches inside the fireplace. And this is before we had uncovered ours. And I was like, oh, come on, sit on benches. How could that be? But once you see the size of the fireplaces, you realize, yeah, they could. And then even more so, that idea of a big roaring fire, that's not not how things happen. What they would do, they would have like six small fires in a fireplace, just the way we have, you know, one burner where we have the pasta going, Mm -hmm. one burner where the sauce is going. And um, so it was never this big roaring fire. And kids kid, yeah, kids really did sit inside the fireplace on benches. And I thought that was very interesting. And I also found out houses were so cold in the colonial era that the sap that was in the logs, as it drove itself to the end of the logs, the sap would freeze on the end of the log, end of the burning logs. That's how, that's how cold it still was in, in fireplaces or in houses in the colonial era.
0: Well, and the other thing, for those who... You know, you can picture this huge fireplace that's probably five feet tall and, and uh, I don't know.
1: It's about eight feet wide. I can eight stand. Eight I'm, um, It's at least five feet tall. And then when you, yeah, obviously you can stand inside there, but yes. Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, you know, you've mentioned a beehive oven. The beehive ovens were either to the right of the fireplace or in the back of the fireplace. And that's where the beehive um, oven was in, in your fireplace. In the back. The, yes. Right. Yeah. It's a back oven that um that you would you would actually bake in
1: yeah and
0: yeah. uh you, they would they would cook in these metal pots that would be on these cast iron um arms that would swing mm-hmm. out yes so so that times back in those days uh, you mean the the rooms were small the ceilings were low on purpose because it did try to keep the heat in right though though um they really weren't that well insulated. And, and so it, it was a very, um, it, it was rough times. It was very that rough. Fact, that and the fact that the, the bathroom was outside. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One so, of the things that I, people always ask me in my research,
1: what was most shocking to me? And the most helpful book when I doing my research was something called Barnes Mortality Record. And what that was, it was a listing of the deaths in Woodbury from 1672. It said to present day, but present day was really 1890. And what it was, it was a listing of um, people's names when they died and very often how they died. And what I was shocked at was the number of women and children that died from scalding. That we always hear about women burning. They said that that was not true because their, their dresses were made of something called linsey Woolsey and they didn't burn. But what happened with the scalding? The thing that went across the top of the fireplace where, where the pots were suspended from, that thing was called the lug pole. And early on, that lug pole was made from wood. And it used to be someone's in the family's job to periodically change this lug pole because it got charred up. So if someone didn't change that, very often the lug pole broke. And these big, you know, cauldrons of burning and bubbling, whatever it was, would spill on the babies who are right next to the fire on the women. So I just think to me, like to have your baby die from scalding nowadays would be unbelievable. But to have your baby die from scalding back then, I just was that was I probably of all things the most shocking thing to
0: me. Well, that and the fact that that there were so many um, children didn't live. I mean, they're there if they lived beyond being a baby. They, they were pretty lucky. Yeah, one in ten infants,
1: yeah, did not survive the first year. And then age 11. Eleven years was considered the magical age. If your child child survived to age 11, they had a pretty good chance of surviving to adulthood. Yeah, right, exactly.
0: Yeah, I found that that when you listed, um, you know, just just um, you gave a, a, an example of, of infant deaths. And they were, you know, the, the scalding and the mm-hmm. drowning.
1: Yes, yes. You know,
0: were, were Two, two that I, I, I just, and I sat back and I said, scalding, how how the heck did they get scalded? Yeah. And, you know, you, you just explained it. I, I think another thing that, that was very fascinating to me was, you want to tell a little bit about babies during that time, how they were yes. taken care of? I mean, this to me. Yeah, um, this,
1: it's kind of like funny and horrible at the same time. So yeah. babies were swaddled for 18 to 24 hours up to six months of age. So what happened was these swaddled up babies, they looked like little mummies. They were very often put in, because families were so large, they were put in the care of the older kids in the family. And what they would do, colonial doors, they didn't have screen doors, obviously, they were almost always open up wide. opened up wide, and animals would be constantly wandering in and out of the house, especially pigs. So they would take these swaddle babies, and they would hang them up on pegs in the kitchen, because they didn't, animals especially pigs used to nibble on these babies oh, so underneath all this swaddling babies wore diapers but the diapers weren't called diapers they were called clouts and just like in elizabethan times the diapers were changed only every three days so i used to say in my presentation if the diaper was poopy yeah the diaper was poopy what they used to do was they would take the poopy diaper they would shake it out They would hang it by the fire to dry and then put it back on the baby. And same thing if the diaper was wet, they would just put it by the fire to dry and just put it back on the baby. And then sometimes we sit around in our kitchen. We sound like weirdos, but we looked at, we look at the beams and we look at the pegs and we say, can you imagine what it was like, you know, pigs wandering in and out of the house, diapers hanging. I mean, babies hanging from the beams, diapers roasting by the fire all winter. You know, people talk about the good old days. It's like unbelievable that anybody survived this stuff to me.
0: Yeah, no, I, when, when, I haven't done that much research in the 1700s, 1800s, a little bit more, Mm -hmm. but, but those that were here first in the, in the 1600s and 1700s, um, to say that they had a tough time is putting it mildly. Yeah. Yes. The, the, the amount of, um, oh, the amount of struggle, the amount of, um, work it took to just survive was phenomenal. And, and especially, you know, even to get fields growing food and stuff like that, their food had to truly last until another harvest of some sort came in. So by the yes. time you got to spring, um, you were looking for roots out there to, to, to make into stews and stuff like that because food ran out.
1: Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yes. Yes. You know, it's funny. I was doing my presentation just the other day, and a woman asked me a question she had, no one ever asked before. She said, "Do you think women, colonial women, were happy?" And I said, "Oh, um, I don't know." And I, I went home and I was talking to Jim, and he said, "I don't know. I don't not, I'm not really sure women are even happy today." But I said, "I think." <laughs> but I think I mean, so many women don't seem like they are. But anyway, he said that. I mean, I said to the woman, "I don't know. Happy just might be something like getting your crops in before the first frost came. Like we're going to get our first frost tonight in Connecticut. Or happy might be that you know uh, you had your your baby survive smallpox. So I think happy is a kind of." I don't ever think they thought about the term happiness the way the way we the way we do.
0: Well, yeah. it's all relative, actually. Yes. And, yes. And, and yes, when, I get
1: it. Things were difficult for men too. I I get all that, but just for me, to the women, it was just day in, day out, day in, day out.
0: Well, that yeah. and the fact also that the women during that particular time frame uh, really didn't have a lot of rights. And no. No. You had you had to be married in order to survive, and sometimes marriages were made for convenience rather than love. And and the element of marrying for love, I don't think was even in the books then.
1: I don't think it happened very often. I think maybe, maybe, maybe if you're lucky, you did fall in love with who you're married to. But yeah, I agree with you. It was, they were, they were very often um, marriages of convenience. Yeah. Or for business matters. Yes. Yep.
0: Or for survival or for land. Yes. Um, Yes. I mean, if if, if you think it was just royalty that sold their daughters for expanding their property lines, you know, have another thought it happened here in this country too yeah and very often older women who were widows um they were
1: reluctant to remarry because if they did remarry they had to turn over everything to the new the new husband younger women i think they had to remarry just because someone had to they had to have a you know a father figure for their kids but yeah very often older women they 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 chose not to remarry if they could possibly avoid it so they could first time they've had some financial independence yeah
0: and it, it's really, it's interesting in going back and looking at, at wills from the 1700s. Um, you know, they, they would give a feather bed to this son and a gun to this son and, and oh, the woman was able to stay in the house until she remarried. Yes, yes, exactly. And, yes. and it's kind of like, my God, she planted the fields, She had babies. She helped maintain the property and, and, you know, just, just, I'll be magnanimous. You can stay here until you marry someone else and get out.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Right. So so the rights were not there. No, they weren't at all. That's what makes me crazy mad about houses in New England. You know, all these houses that are in the historic district, they all have the the house sign, you know, like Jacob Lindsay's house or, you know, Matthew Hurlbut's house. And I figure it just makes me so mad that it's never the, the wife's name is also included in the house. You figure she gave birth to all the kids in there. And she did exactly what the man did. And it just that just kind of stuff makes me crazy nuts.
0: Yeah, and it's not like she sat and knitted socks. She was out in the fields, too.
1: Absolutely, yes. Yep.
0: But now the the spirit that was in your house, how old was she? How old was Susanna? Susanna. How old was she when she died? Yeah. 39. Okay, so she had had three children by then or more. Uh, She had
1: three. Three uh, three that
0: survived. Two that survived and three um, stillbirths. Okay, so so. I mean, and there was no doctor's office. There was no pre- prenatal care. There was nothing.
1: There was nothing at all. No, um, they, they, oh yeah, childbirth. I did a lot of research on childbirth. Childbirth, they had very uh, crude cesareans if the baby could be saved, but it would be a death sentence for the mother. And if the baby could not be saved, um, very often what they did was they called in a barber or a surgeon. And while the mother was still awake, because there was no anesthesia until around the Civil War and the baby was still alive, they would dismember the baby piece by piece. And that's, whenever I do that, talk about that in my presentation, it's just there again. It's like, I, I, I get it that things were hard for men, but these women would go on to have, you know, probably at least eight to 10 pregnancies. And can you imagine, you know, becoming pregnant again after something like that happened to you? It just, it just breaks my heart. I have such respect for our four mothers.
0: No, I would have become a nun. (laughs) (laughs) Easily, easily. (laughs) So so you found out who was there. You found yes. out her name. Mm-hmm. You, became to, you came to get to know her. And, and so was there any suggestion as to why she was there?
1: Um, well, I came to get to know her. It took me a while to get to know her. What would happen was, as I say, like I've said this about 10 times, we were very messed up. And what I would do was everybody would go to sleep. And about once I found out who she was, and you know, a little, I knew a little bit about her husband's name and when she was married, I would go into what we called Susan's room, because that's what we called it, and I would just go in there and I would talk and talk and talk to her for hours. I would tell her things that, um, mostly this had stuff to do with my childhood, and I would just tell her things I'd never told anybody else. And it wasn't so much that I felt that she was counseling me, but I always I always kind of felt that she was listening to me Although I never like had a clear picture of what she looked like. I just always kind of felt to me like she was there. And I always just seemed to feel better every time I left the room. So this would, and then I, you know, I do that till about three or four in the morning Then I'd go upstairs, get in bed with Jim, you know, spoon up, up, up against him. And it just was kind of a, mm, I guess it was like a cathartic thing, thing for me because Jim kind of refused to talk about Brazil. Um, nobody wanted to hear any more about my parents. And I really just didn't have anybody to talk to about all this. And I just kind of, talk to her. She didn't answer, but I talked to her.
0: A great kind of therapy.
1: It was. I didn't realize at the time, but it was. Yeah. Yes.
0: And, and it's, it's, and again, there's, there's no moaning and groaning at night or rustling of chains or anything. This is, this is how it usually happens, folks. It's, it's usually, um, she obviously had a rough life. She obviously there was a trauma in her life as well, um, as you were to discover, mm-hmm. and and so that so that there was a sort of a synchronicity between the two of you, and in order for her to heal and move on, it helped you to heal and move on in many ways.
1: Yeah, in retrospect, I realize now we we healed. We, she had a story to tell and a secret to share. I shared a lot. I wouldn't say they were secrets, but I shared a lot about myself with her that I never shared with anyone else. And looking back on it now, yeah, we both held our helped ourselves helped each other heal. Yeah, exactly.
0: I mean, and and we'll get into a little bit more of all of the the ongoings here, but but it I find it fascinating that that everyone was so comfortable with the whole procedure, and and how your family in in some ways. Um, helped her to heal because your family healed and, and there was such a wonderful sense of, of um, a family that you brought into the house. She didn't have that. She didn't have a family in the house. She had children. She had a husband who was not a nice guy.
1: No, he was not a nice guy. No,
0: no. And, and so she had no love, no compassion, no, no sympathetic anything and, and, you know, you just, you, you think back on what her life must have been life like, and, you know, New England is tough. Yes. Yes, New England is. is, the weather here is, it's beautiful because we have seasons, but the winters are harsh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, and and they can be harsher than harsh. Right. So.
1: But yeah, um, we have our LLB jackets and our Ugg boots and chainsaws, and can you, I just can't imagine what, I, yeah, I. I think about that all the time. Like, I really have such a respect for anyone who survived any of that. Yes, I totally agree with you. Yes.
0: Now, now, of the original land grant that that they got, mm-hmm. how how much of the acreage did you did did you get with the house?
1: That's the only kind of bad. Well, it's not really bad. Originally, eighty there were eighty three acres went with the, went with the house, and it was interesting reading the deed because they gave all kinds of things like, you know. Um, up to the something, the seven, seven rods up to the white birch in, you know, Farmer Turner's field. So it gave up kind of interesting things like that. Um, now we just, we only have two acres, sadly. But, um, but that's okay. That's, you know, that's fine.
0: Well, I think they're the two acres that mattered because you did discover stuff on the acreage. Yes, we did. <laughs> which I will not talk about. Okay. But, but, um, yeah, but I ne- you know, I never, th- I never, you know, I never thought
1: about that, that we do have the two acres. That I never thought about that, but you're right. Yeah, eighty whatever it was, eighty-one acres were given away, but we do have the two most important acres. Yeah,
0: and and the reason I say it was the two most important because things were found on those two acres that validated the story and make it even cooler than than than. Because um, I'm not going to give the story away. The book they make it
1: is- creepier and cooler at the same time. Would you say? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So- Thank it's, you for not giving it away, but yes.
0: Nope, I won't. But okay. but you know, there are a number of things that happened that that sort of make made her a part of your family. And
1: I think we, we always thought of her that way, which is funny that um, yeah we yeah you know because we never really called that room anything, and then one night we that we kind of used it as our home office, and one night Jim was looking for and we just kind of called it the back room. And one night Jim was looking for the stamps and I said, Oh, they're in that old white cupboard in Susan's room. And right after that, it was just, we always just called it Susan's room. You know, to this day, it's where Eris has her wellness center, but I still, in my mind, I still call it Susan's room. So yeah, she always was. Um, I wouldn't, you know, we didn't set a place for at the dinner table, but <laughs> we were always like very welcoming and just aware of the fact that she was there. And what else is funny that the way the house is, and it's still to this day, it's like, even from the very first day we walked in, it's a very welcoming house. Like sometimes people will come over just for maybe a short visit. You know, they plan to stay half an hour. Three hours later, people are still there. And so many people, as they're leaving the house, they say there's just something about that this house and the feeling that's in this house. And we say, yeah, we we felt it right from the beginning too. And well, did, did you feel it? Was it, it was a good feeling in the house. Oh, yeah,
0: it? I, yeah. And it's funny when I was looking for a new house, um, when I had to move about 12 years ago, I would, I would even actually sit outside a house and say to the realtor, nope, it's not a happy house. Yeah. I'm not going in. Same with and, us, yeah. And, yeah. and so, that, so that the fact that it stayed empty for five years felt like um, it, was, it was sort of rejecting people who were looking at it until you came along. And, and it feels like your needs met her needs. There was a synchronicity, and it welcomed you in.
1: Well, that's what – this is one of the first things I had trouble – I wouldn't say – I guess comprehending or wrapping my head around what Laura said was that um, she had been waiting 245 years, whatever it was, 247 years for us to come, and that she had driven everyone else out of the house because they weren't the right people that were supposed to be there, and that her connection was to me, and that she was waiting for me all these years, which I think that was hard for me to understand because obviously – she didn't know me. And then some people have asked me But I, I, we have a lot of um, book clubs at our house because mm-hmm. people have said my book is a good book club and they asked me to come to speak at their book clubs. I can't do that. I'm just one person. So instead, we have book clubs at our house. And some people have actually said that they think that Susan masterminded all the things that happened to us in Brazil that I have some trouble wrapping my head around because I don't know how that possibly could have been. But, um, yeah, that's what Laura said, that she drove everyone out and she was waiting for us and she knew get, that we were coming. Yeah,
0: I, I will get that she drove everything, everybody out. I think on a spiritual yeah. level, she welcomed you and was waiting for you. I don't not I, I in, in, you know, in my opinion, I don't think that she had anything to do with maneuvering everything that happened in Brazil. But she was waiting for you on a spiritual level and then quite possibly. Um, you might have been together in a past life. Who knows?
1: That's possible too. I mean, I'm I'm open. I don't know all that much about that, but I'm I'm open to all that. That's very possible. Yeah, it's very possible. It's no, really- it's very very comfortable. We always just all four of us just accepted her, and like I say, not like she was part of the. Well, sort of like she was part of the family in a way. She was part of the family. Yes.
0: Well, she helped you to begin to heal, and and yes that that, that was that was amazing we're going to hear music in a in in a short short period of time here and when we hear the music we'll we'll take a three to five minute break and then we'll we'll come back i don't want to get into i don't want to start into anything else until um second half because i hate being cut in half but but no i i i strongly feel that that um spirits and and houses houses have energy too and the fact that you had a spirit in the house made it made it an easy thing i mean it's easy for for love to be felt and it's easy for um discomfort to be felt so um the, the people would walk in and not want the house i can i can easily see how that could be made to happen
1: Okay, okay, that's interesting to know that because I always wondered was that really possible. But obviously, you're the expert on that, not me. But interesting. Well, okay.
0: <laughs> no, I, I just I, I have an opinion, and I've been around a long time. But um, <laughs> but but what I love is um, even the even the fireplace, um, the big one that you found mm-hmm. had had the King George wood in it, which I, I, I think is an interesting tale as well. You want to? Yeah,
1: yeah. If it, it has something, what they call um, Kingswood. So there's some paneling. Apparently, um, there's some people, there's a little discrepancy there, but any wood that was wider than somewhere between 18 and 24 inches, that was reserved for the crown because by the um, American Revolution era, pretty much all of England was deforested. So what would happen was any wood that he, that grew here in the colonies, it was greater in diameter than 18 to 24 inches. It was, was reserved for the mass for the British ships. So what we think is interesting that somebody who was a little rebellious must have lived in our house because we do have Kingswood over that, that um, one fireplace. Yeah. So that's, I think that's kind of cool. And we love pointing it out to people.
0: <laughs> yeah, nobody's going to come and get you on that one. No. <laughs> there we go. We'll be back three to five minutes. This is Nightlight, and if you like what you're hearing, click over to the support page and make a donation to help us keep this amazing station up and running. Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com is totally listener-supported, from the owner to the host to the producers, who we can't live without, to the staff. All are working here because we love the work and are dedicated to putting out quality material for all of you be it large or small, every donation is greatly appreciated and it helps us all keep on supplying information and material to educate and enlighten you that isn't found anywhere else. We really appreciate your efforts, hope that we are serving you well, so make a donation and help us serve you even better. We greatly appreciate anything that you can do that will help us out here. So, we're back. Um, I'm back with, we're back with, uh, Vilja Jans Urban, and she has written a book that is amazing, informative, enlightening, and inspiring called Acquiescence. Um, Acquiescence, Acquiescence is an amazing title. You want to explain how you picked that title? Sure. Um, Acquiescence, the word, Acquiescence does not surrender.
1: Surrender to me means hoisting the white flag at the forward. It means totally giving up acquiescence means the reluctant acceptance of something without protest. And the, when you read the book, you're going to see that the, the main character, the protagonist is a pretty thinly disguised version of me. And what happens is that she, she acquiesces. Um, she, she and her family move, move into a foreclosed farmhouse in Connecticut, and she learns of a murder committed over 200 years ago in order to inve- avenge an unforgivable crime. But it's the way she finds out that makes Pamina eventually accept that she has no idea how the universe works. Um, so what happens is that she, 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 and really it was me, acquiesces and just learns to accept accept the fact there are just some things in life that can't be explained.
0: Yeah, and it, it, and and that's true. There is absolutely no doubt about that one. And and sometimes. We don't well, you know, have the answer to everything. Yeah, see that was I see
1: I used to think that I had total control over my life and I could prevent disaster from striking if I was just organized. I was so organized that I had the manuals to all of our appliances. I had all of our tax returns dating back from nineteen eighty-three. I kept all my graduate school notebooks, like I don't know what what I thought was going to happen. I was going to be called upon to (laughs) translate some Shakespearean sonnet. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I actually had something called the Good Dish Towels, which to me, looking back on now, is idiotic. Uh, My favorite (laughs) perfume is Chanel Number 5, and I used to ration it, like I don't know what I thought they were going to stop making it. But I realized that um, you, you, you can't stop bad things from happening, and it's just a matter of how you deal with those things. And I learned to acquiesce and I learned to stop questioning everything and trying to figure out how things work. I always say I kind of compare it now that I listen to car, you know, songs in the radio on my car. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that works. Just like I don't know how there's a spirit woman in our house. The old me would have tried to figure that out and try to analyze it all. The new me. I don't know how she's there, but I know she's there and I'm not going to waste my life trying to figure out how that kind of stuff happens. I just know that it does. So to me,
0: bro-
1: to me, to me, that's you- acquiescence.
0: <laughs> you you wrote something in one of your interviews and it, it was acquiescence. The, the family in the book finds the courage to overcome adversity, realize that love never dies and accept that there are bigger forces out there that know no limit. They yes. learn that it's not what happens to you. It's how you deal with what happens to you, and that the best revenge is living a happy life.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, I talked all year, earlier about being betrayed in Brazil, and I decided that I was not going to let that guy beat us. He was a dear family friend who betrayed us, um, and I wasn't. I wasn't going to let it happen. I was not going to be shattered by that, and I was going to go on, and I was going to have a great life, and I have. It took Jim much, much longer to heal because he felt responsible for. What happened to us, it was not his fault, you know, not at all. But I think as the, you know, the man of the family kind of thing, he felt much more responsible about it, but um, and took him much longer to heal. But we've all come out of it different. And I would say much better people.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. And having something traumatic like that happen, it either destroys a family or it pulls them together. And in your case, it pulled you all together. Yeah, I think when something bad happens to you
1: and you survive it, you realize what's important in life. And that if you did survive that bad thing, you can do it again if you have to. And, and it probably something bad will happen to me again in my life. But you realize how strong you are and how un- unimportant most things are. And you learn not to take things for granted. I don't think I ever really did. But now I really don't take anything for granted. And it takes a lot to get me upset. Um, yeah. Yes. You're right. You're right.
0: <laughs> well, I think also researching the ghost that's in your house learning about her life and, the, and, and, and what she went through. And, and she never had the opportunity to live well and prosper. And, and when you put that against what you experienced, it, 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 it doesn't diminish what you experienced, but it puts things in a better perspective because you still had each other and you still had the ability to survive. And she didn't survive.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Um, Yeah. She was, she was, she was alone. She really, she was alone. We did, you know, this did all happen to us, but we did come back to Brazil from Brazil as a family. um, And we did have each other. At times it didn't feel that way, you know, as we were both, all all of us healing in our own ways, but we were, Mm -hmm. but we were, but we were a family. Yes.
0: Well, and I, I found it fascinating that, you know, it sent you in a direction that you had not anticipated. And I'm sure that this is not something that you might have done um, had you not had this story to tell. And in in a way, telling the story helps you to heal even more, and share the wisdom that you got from the experience.
1: Oh, it was very, very, very cathartic, you know. And since I've written *Acquiescence*, I've traveled around the East Coast doing presentations, and I've learned that you know from all the people I've met on my journey, whether it's anger, guilt, love loss, betrayal. Everybody's got something. And one of the hardest things in life is letting go. Um, But it's important to learn the importance of moving on and that problems, problems are what make us grow. And writing the book really was very cathartic for me. And it's funny, the thing I had to, if you read the book, you're going to see that I had to, I had to make the agonizing, horrible decision to walk away from my, walk away from my parents. And one of the things that held me back from. that held me back. But one of the things I really, really worried about in, the, in releasing the book was how people were going to view me because I felt like I was, I knew that I was a, a wonderful daughter and I always had been, but I felt that when I walked away from my parents, people were going to judge me as someone, you know, like a rotten daughter. And I, it's been just the opposite. People have said they, they admired that I had the strength to do that. And also that I had no other choice that I had to do that. So the thing that I was most worried about in releasing the book has turned out to be not something to worry about at all. So that's, oh. been, that's been interesting. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah and but your house is magical. There's there's just no other way to put it. Oh, thank you. And and um you know I've, I've always been fascinated with with colonial houses anyhow and yours really felt as though even though um, they were the original owners of it but it really felt as though with the size of it and the number of rooms that at some point somebody of, of that was quite affluent, um, had to have lived there because, I mean, you even have a ballroom. I mean, <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> I'm not sure it is ballroom, but yeah, we did have a we did have an expert in uh, early American uh, antiques, and she she claims that the room that we call the sitting room is the ballroom. I'm not so sure if I believe that, but yes, she calls it the ballroom.
0: <laughs> no, I, I'm pretty sure they didn't put the ballroom upstairs. No, <laughs> so um, but. But what what was fascinating is that your discovery of, of first first that you had her there and then, you know, it, it wasn't just that you had her there. She did. She did affect electronics. Uh, and, and that that's a really cool story. You want to tell that one?
1: You mean how she would leave me? Uh, there's two different ones, the printer one or the laptop one? Either both, actually. OK, I'll, I'll tell the printer one because that one's good. So, as I said, Susan's room. And I think we were calling, yeah, we were, oh, this is the day after the reading. This is what happened. Yeah, we were calling it Susan's Room, um, starting to call it Susan's Room then. So it used to be our home office. So our daughter, Eris, and her boyfriend, Zane, were in that back room. And at the time, Jim was going to stop being a contractor and go back to the corporate world. So I was setting out all kinds of resumes for him. So Eris was in the back room trying to get something to print out from Career Builder. So the, the t- printer was always, always temperamental. So I walked in the room and I said, Eris, what's going on in here? And she said, I don't know. I've been trying all my usual tricks to get the printer to print, but I can't do it no matter what I do. So then she turned off the printer, turned off all the the different buttons you have to turn off, and we watched the lights go out. And so the printer was turned off. Now, the day before, when I had had my reading, Laura said that um, I need some kind of symbol of motherhood in the room. And I thought to myself, symbol of motherhood, because I don't I don't really believe in Mother's Day. I'm not into all that stuff. I don't she said, you have something that says mother on it. And I thought, no, you know, like she said, a piece of jewelry. And I'm like, no, that's kind of corny. I wouldn't have that. So I she said, well, just think about something that represents motherhood to you. And you have to bring that thing down into the room and you have to have it here. Okay. So fast forward again now to the the printer's not working. So Eris and I were talking a little bit like, why is this printer not working? We're so sick of this happening. So then Eris looked at me and she said, do you think Susan could be doing it? And I said, I don't know. And then I said, you know, she said she wants some kind of symbol of motherhood in here. What, you know, what are we going to do? And Eris said, I don't know. You don't have anything like that. That stuff's all kind of corny. So then Eris looked at me and she, all of a sudden she goes, the teeth. And I was like, and I knew exactly what she meant. What she meant was in my vanity upstairs that Jim had bought me when we first got married, I had two or actually three jars of baby teeth in these little Avon perf- empty perfume jars, my baby teeth from when I was a kid and mixed baby teeth and Ares's baby teeth. So I said, oh, yeah. And, the, and she knew that those things were very important to me because I just couldn't bear to throw their teeth away when they fell out. So I said, oh, run upstairs, get the teeth and, you know, we'll bring them downstairs. So Ares and Zane ran upstairs. They got the three jars of baby teeth. They brought them downstairs you know, we very ceremoniously kind of opened the jars up, looked inside. And Eris said something like, you know, Susan, these these teeth are very important to my mother. And right at that exact moment, the printer turned on and spit out the career builder copies that we've been waiting for. And I looked at Eris and I said, I am 100% positive that you turned off that printer. You know, and Zane said the same thing. You know, And Eris said, yeah, I know I turned it off. And I said, you better go give daddy his career builder copies and better um, tell him what happened. And she says, I don't think he's going to be surprised because Jim was all into this way more than I was in the beginning. And yeah, that was, that was one of Susan's first electronic things that she did. Yes. And I was, when I have, we have people come to the house, it's still the exact same printer in that room and the three jars of baby teeth are still there on the windowsill. So, so he left them in there. And I guess that's what she wanted because those, those teeth are, they, they're a symbol of motherhood to me.
0: Oh, absolutely. And not only that, um, Your computer every now and then when you turned it on twice that I recall, there was a message on it and you thought that people were fooling around with you or kidding around with you or, and, and we won't say what the messages were, but, but, but it was not one word. It was a good sentence. And, and it, it's. It's amazing, you know, seventeen seven, seventy, but she figured out how to make a computer say something, right? And right. and and all along, giving you hints to what what was going on with her, and it, it just to me was was fascinating. And and again, usually it's subtleties. Usually it's something that that isn't, it, it, you know, she didn't type out the whole story for you. That would no, be no, no. too easy. <laughs> it, it's kind of like spirit, give me you know, send me a, send me a telegram. Don't just give me all these stupid symbols and make me figure it out. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it just, um, it was amazing how she gave you the symbols and you ran with them. Um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't as if, um, you know, you, you just, you know, blindly stumbled forward you you took action on everything that every hint that you got you you just kept going with it so that you know you were probably one of the easiest people in the world to haunt
1: <laughs> i guess so i never i never thought of it that way but yeah yeah, i guess you're right and looking back on it now i realized she was bringing us bringing me along on her journey and 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 you're, as you say putting all these clues out for me but you know at the time then i i know now from people i've talked to that spirit's they do are they I guess it is easier for them to um, make themselves known through electronics right than just than just sort of touching you is that correct
0: yeah that is that's right I mean yeah that, so that, you know they'll they'll have the phone will ring and there'll be nobody there right. and um lights on and off things like that mm-hmm. um that's kind of fun um every now and then there are they're really cool things they do and then they're annoying things that they do I have a I have a lamp that um is one of those that you, you you touch it, and it goes on, and you touch it, and it goes off. Yes. And it was my husband's, and mm-hmm. he loved it. That was his lamp, and nobody touched it. And um, after he passed away, it just stayed up in the in the room that it was in. And, and a friend of mine is, is now living in the upstairs of my house, and she liked the lamp. And I said, well, that was Patrick's, but I have to caution you. Um, he turns it on and off at night. At strange times. And she looked at me and she said, right. And I said, seriously, <laughs> um, it, it's why it's not down in my bedroom, because it was I liked the lamp, too. And I would like to have had it in my room, except Patrick would turn it on and off um, at strange times. And, you know, just hi, I'm here. Light on. Yeah. yeah. And um, and about. Oh, three weeks in, she came downstairs and said, I had to unplug Patrick's lamp. And I said, really, how come? She said, well, he thinks, you know, two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning is a good time to turn the light on and do some work or something. And,
1: <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> and it's, it's just a matter of, OK, this isn't going to work. And I had it rewired. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and in, in cases like that, I always check out every obvious thing first before declaring it spirit. Yes, you, yes. Know, you don't you, you get you get them the lamps rewired you do every change the bulbs. you do everything you can and when there is no other answer then the weirdest answer has to be what's going on. And I think that's kind of I mean I didn't didn't change the plugs or things like that but yeah
1: that's exactly how it was. I would try to like like I keep saying I was the ambivalent skeptic. I was like I I, I think it's happening but I don't know, you know, it, yeah. Yes, because you don't want to you don't want to feel like you're crazy, but you don't want to overanalyze everything. And there again, I, things were still crazy in our minds. But but you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And every time <laughs> things started to sort of calm down, another hint would would pop up. Another something. I never, th-
1: that- I never thought about it that way. But yeah, you're absolutely. You're at, yeah. You know, I never thought about it. Till you just said that. But yeah, you're right. Yes, you're absolutely right.
0: So that so that you would get a hint and you'd follow it through and you'd investigate it up the wazoo and and then you know you'd kind of put it to bed and then suddenly there would be yeah you're right I never th- another yeah, hint
1: I, yeah you're right <laughs> that's pretty funny that you can see you saw that but I I still didn't realize that till you just said it yeah you're right absolutely right things did kind of go like as a yeah like a Sherlock work, Holmes
0: sort of thing yes I, I work with spirits remember Oh um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> plus you're a close reader that's good
0: Well, yes, I you know I don't know anybody who should who interviews you about the book should have read it. I feel that you you do that respect. Um, so 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 that as time went on and renovations on the house went on and um, trying to get heat into bathrooms became important. Mm -hmm. Um, your husband found more hints in in the rafters of the house. Yes, and he discovered three things. Um, and what uh, uh, was one was her Bible, yes. and and there were two other things that he discovered that set you off again on another path of discovery. Yes, and it, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to tell anybody what they were because you've okay. got to read the book. But but basically, it explained how how she ended her days and why mm-hmm. and and it was violent and it was amazing and you and your fam- family were able to uncover the evidence th- what 200 and some years later mm-hmm. yes that that the hints that you had been given were accurate they were accurate just a
1: couple of them we were we were misinterpreting but um but, ex- but what Laura said in the reading was exactly true. We were just kind of putting a different, it's hard to say, a like, different different interpretation of what she was saying, but she was absolutely right. Yes, exactly. And what happened was um, when we tore the first, we now have found uh, two other fireplaces, but when we tore that first fireplace down, we were left with some dangling BMX cable. And when Jim had Jim was up in the attic, rerouting, saying where we were going to put that cable, that's when he made, yeah, discovery in the attic. Yes, absolutely. Yep.
0: I mean, how how fantastic to have gotten her name, discovered she really existed, found her tombstone, and then 200 and some years later finding her Bible still in the same house. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. And as you know, Connecticut houses are full of mice and um, nothing was nibbled up. And, yeah, you know, it's pretty funny. We just discovered another fi- – we peeked behind some back stairs and we discovered another fireplace yesterday, which we're going to tear down walls and we pulled out some stuff from behind those walls, and same thing the things nothing was nibbled up in those walls, and we're just like you you live in Connecticut, you know what it's like mice mice take over our houses here, and it's just it's just kind of interesting to us that everything is in just such pristine shape,
0: yeah, well, it must not be too well, you know, come on with all of the new stuff out there to nibble on, why would they go back to old stuff i
1: I guess so, yeah, I suppose, yeah,
0: I mean, I had suet in my garage that a mouse ate through two layers of plastic to get to (laughs) and, and um, you know, I guess
1: why would they nibble up a Bible? Yeah. When he can yeah. Eat, suet in a garage. You're right.
0: But, but how, how phenomenal to, and and when you found the Bible and you found the information in it and you found the other um, clue that was there as well, Mm -hmm. it sets you on. I mean, you discovered you had a map and the map led you to the discovery of two amazing things Mm -hmm. and, and, and it put, it put the whole story together because her family and your family had a number of things in common.
1: That's what I thought was very interesting. There were some parallels that I didn't even, until the book was published, there are a few parallels. I guess I can, we both had gay sons. I guess that's not giving away too much. Um, and there were some other parallels too that I just thought were very interesting. That's a couple of them where I never even realized until readers pointed them out to me, which I thought was interesting. Yeah.
0: And it's, 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 it's a verification. It's, it's absolutely saying, yes, this happened. Yes, this was me. Yes. You know, here's, here's proof that I existed. And, you know, that's, I, I think that's what would be important to me. Um, You know, I don't know when I go into spirit, you know, how I'm going to feel on the other side about my work and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But but it would it would be important to me if my life had been full of misery, full of sadness, full of abuse.
1: Yeah.
0: I would want to know that 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 somehow my spirit could be put to rest and and that, that someday somebody would discover something that would Confirm that I existed and I did something and I, I really was here and I left my mark. And I would say she's left an amazing mark. I didn't feel, I, I don't feel that she is a, a constant resident in your house, but I, I'm sure she drops in every now and then to check things out. According to, first of all, yeah, I, I agree with what you said. And I think that
1: like what Laura said right from the beginning, that she had a story to tell, and she was not going to move on until she told that story because she had to avenge an unforgivable crime. Mm-hmm. And she did that. She did that in, in a couple of ways. I forgot what I was just going to say. I just came out well, of my she, head. she
0: she she did more than that because you know she told her story to you, who told your so- sto- her story to the world, and made them more aware of her existence. I mean. It's important, I think, for everyone to want to believe that they have left a mark and made a difference yeah I think
1: I definitely think so, yeah, and especially for a a woman of that era, she didn't leave her mark really in any other way, you know, yeah, we hear about Anne Bradstreet, we hear of a few of the women poets and writers, but so many of them have been forgotten, but um Susan has not been forgotten
0: <laughs> well I, from from what from what I you know, from, from what you told the story and from the story seemed to be that, that you know, she really was, um, <clears throat> it was not a marriage of love, that she had these children, many have died, that, that it was a harsh life. It was not luxurious. And I, I don't think anybody in colonial times here had a luxurious life.
1: No, I, just, I think towards the end of the colonial period, perhaps the wealthy people. But no, but the ones early on, no, absolutely not. And especially not people who lived on a farm, which is what our situation or her situation was. Yeah, yeah. Now,
0: now, I, when I was there, I saw a lot of fireplaces. Yes. And and it 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 almost feels as though there was almost one in every room. Uh, yes, there is, and we just discovered.
1: Um, another chimney at the top of our upstairs stairs. And like I said, we'd look behind a wall and we know now there's a, a fireplace behind our son Mix bedroom wall. And we're going to be taking, as soon as winter comes, we're going to work on that and discover that one too. So yeah, but as, but still, you know, I read about, you know, we, we've all seen Dr. Zhivago where the, the ink froze in the ink wells, but that wasn't happening just in Siberia. That was happening here in Connecticut. It was, it was a terrible, terrible existence. Um, houses burned 50, 15 to 20 cords of wood for, per fireplace. So like in our fire in our house now, we know for sure that there were three fireplaces. So that would have been 60 cords of wood, you know, without chainsaws, without log splitters, without the winter clothes that we have today. It was just, and still your house was freezing cold. So it was a terrible, terrible existence, terrible. And forget, you know, can you imagine what the summer was like in with the clothes that they wore? Like it was terrible.
0: Well, and the cool thing is in, in most of these houses, uh in in that time frame they didn't have closets they had pegs on the wall because you didn't have you know yeah I think
1: as a matter of fact I think Laura told me that Susan had three dresses I think that's what she I think matter of fact she said that she had three dresses yeah that was it that was it yep
0: and and actually here at Connecticut um you had to go to church every Sunday
1: Mm -hmm. yes you did
0: and and it wasn't it wasn't like you have to go or you're or you're um, excommunicated. It's you had to go, or you wouldn't get the support of the community. Right,
1: and without the support of the community, yeah, you were you were pretty much sunk, right? But then, even in you know, women were not. I'm talking early on in the colonial era. Women were not allowed to speak without the permission of their husband or their father. And same thing, even in church, they were not allowed to speak. They could they even with the, with singing. They were just weren't. They were not allowed to. No, it was women had a pretty crummy life. They really did.
0: Oh, oh, oh. Speaking of that, explain to them what happened to a wife who gossiped.
1: Oh, a wife who gossiped wore something called a gossip's bridle or a brank. And what it was, it was an iron cage that was put over the head of women and it was closed shut. And then they all had a ring either around the front, you know, kind of like a a bull has a ring on its nose. Mm -hmm. And your husband was supposed to lead you through town with a chain hooked up to this gossip's bridle. And the good Christian townspeople were encouraged to throw things at the woman who was the gossip, including human excrement. So, yep, that was, of course, that was not going, that was, I always explain in my talks, the colonial era um, is a big, long time. That was not happening in 1781 towards the end. But yeah, that was, yep, gossip's bridal. I'm sure it was a thing invented by a man, and I'm sure the man invented, decided that you were the gossip.
0: Ah, uh, you know... If if I was married, I don't believe my husband would have lived long if he tried to pull any of that on me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you kind of sound that way. I think you're right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I I can think of many ways of getting even, but uh, yeah. um but but it just it to me, Susan had um such a harsh life and and you know, there's a, you, you wonder Happiness, you know, we we spoke about it before, is, is truly relative, just happy you get through the day. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And and when you stop and think about the fact that the, the houses, the floors were all wood, mm-hmm. and, and they had to be swept constantly and scrubbed with lye, yes. mm-hmm. um, you had to make your own soap. You had to make, you know, you had Made to make urine. everything.
1: Human urine, yep, right.
0: Charming. Yes, yes. Urine and lye or just
1: urine? Urine is what actually made the lie. It was urine, I believe it was urine and ashes, which is what somehow that all turned into lie. But yeah. Yep. Pretty bad. Don't you think? Rather go with lie.
0: Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, but, and, and in the wintertime, there was no way to hang laundry outside and you had to, they boiled the clothes Mm -hmm. in, in a pot and, and just hung them up. And it's, it's, it's stop and think, you know, if you had to wear the same three dresses Mm -hmm. constantly, especially all winter long, chances are you weren't going to wash it. I mean, having pigs in the house would be nothing to compare to what the humans smelled like, I would think.
1: Right. And that was when I started doing my research. That's how this whole, the not so good life of the colonial good wife um, talk started because then I wondered um, in an era when women didn't wear underwear, because underwear wasn't invented until about 1825. What did these colonial women do when they had their periods and that's what I talk about in in my clinic, Good talk. You know how they deal with menstruation, sex, and birth control, childbirth, all that stuff that we never. But I was always interested in, but that we never learned about in school, in college, high school, any any kind of schooling. And that's that's kind of what I talk about because it interests me, and it seems like a lot of people are interested in this because it's become a very popular talk.
0: Okay, so birth control. Now I know what we do today, mm-hmm. but and and I can think of only one way to have birth control, and that's. Not to have sex, but but there was no TV, no books and and very and no radio and no electricity. Mm -hmm. There's very little else to do. So how did they how did they and they had to keep having children because they kept killing their kids. And, you know, yeah, they had they actually had very primitive condoms. They
1: were made of um, animal intestines, linen soaked in um, sulfur or lye or fish bladder. And they said the problem with them was that they fell off. And I always say falling off would be the least of the problems. I would not want something that was soaked in lye inside of me. And another common thing was to use um, crocodile poop that was mixed with, the, with, with honey and that was inserted inside the vagina to help prevent pregnancy. And I guess the crocodile poop, the fact that it was crocodile poop had nothing to do with it. It's just that it was this powder that mixed with the honey that when it entered the vagina, I think it formed kind of a diaphragm sort of thing. And uh, yeah, that's the kind of thing that they were using for, for contraceptive, which it, it was not obviously by the size of the families, it was not working at all, but uh, it was pretty bad stuff. Yeah. Yep. Where would somebody in New England get crocodile poop? It's funny. You know, that was one of the first, th- I always say this in my talk. That's one of the things I wondered about. And then our son, Mick, who went to the University of Puerto Rico and he loved it so much that he stayed there. He came up and he heard one of my talks and he said, mom, you have to stop and think about the fact that to um, the, the colonists you know a crocodile um would have been something it would have been like something like the um you know like a unicorn it would have been so, so such a mystical thing yeah. so it, it had nothing it had nothing to do with the, the contraceptive working and where they get got this crocodile poop i have no idea and another thing that i thought was really interesting one of the most interesting things i researched was we all especially in connecticut we all know about queen anne's lace which is actually mm-hmm. wild carrot what they used to do was they somehow they discovered that the seeds chewing on the seeds blocked progesterone synthesis and it acted sort of as a morning after form of birth control and women could stop taking queen anne's lace and go on to conceive a child normally the only problem was mixing it up with water hemlock which it looks very similar and we all know that's what killed um socrates
0: but yes. what I, oh,
1: I always wonder is how did somebody figure that out how did they figure out that chewing on queen anne's lace was a pretty effective form of contraception and i, I think i've said it 25 times already that eris is an herbalist and she went to a big women's herbal conference last summer up in Vermont. And there was a whole workshop on women today using Queen Anne's Lace seeds as a contraceptive. So it's something I, I kind of like the whole idea of things going full circle. And I just think it's kind of interesting that colonial women did that. And, you know, we're doing that again today. So I find it interesting. I well, find a lot of things interesting. <laughs> I'm
0: I, I also fascinated with the fact that if Queen Anne's Lace is a great contraceptive, it it puts big pharma out of out of business on in, in a major, major market. You're my and, kind of woman. Yeah,
1: very good. Yep, I totally agree with you. Yes, yes.
0: Yeah, I wonder if we get volunteers to test that one out. <laughs> How about you? Um, yeah, I'm way beyond childbearing here. <laughs> it wouldn't prove anything, but if it does anything for hot flashes, I'd be willing to try it. Oh, Eris could give
1: some for that, Raiders. She could, she could, yep.
0: And, you know, you've mentioned Eris a number of times. And she mm-hmm. is, um, she does Reiki and she does um, a lot of stuff. And what is the new website that you guys have up just to make sure we get it out there? Groundedgoodwife.com. What that's all about is I am the
1: Colonial Goodwife. Eris owns Grounded Holistic Wellness. We, on our own, we both, you know, taught a lot of classes. Eris would always come with me when I taught my classes. I always went with Eris when she taught hers. And then one night we realized, this is kind of dopey. Why don't we start teaching some classes together? So as the Grounded Good Wife, we teach a bunch of historic medicinal workshops, a lot of them here at our 1770 farmhouse, and a lot of them out and about. You know, we teach things like um, making elderberry syrup, herbal sleep pillows, um, fire cider, all different things like that. So together now we are the Grounded Good Wife, (laughs) groundedgoodwife.com.
0: Well, I I have to tell you, I I, I do elixir from, um, from lemon mint. Mm -hmm. And, um, so if you look into some of the, 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 the natural remedies that they had back there, some of them were very effective.
1: They were, they really were. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Others were just damn right stupid. A lot of it was, um, a lot of the colonists resorted to, um, like magic and spells and they didn't see any any kind of conflict with that with the church. However, the church was not wild about any of that stuff. So there were a lot of magic and spells. But there were a lot of really valid um, herbal remedies that really, truly did work and are still used today. Yes.
0: Well, look at Digitalis. Right. I mean, that, yeah, that's that, a good one. That's, that's out there. And, and that is used in science today for a lot of stuff. Yeah. So so um, some of the stuff that but, – but you do – there weren't any scientists around then. It was just sort of um, – you know, uh darn, you know, dub luck. Um a Vermont farmer found that um two tablespoons of, of apple cider vinegar um works miracles for arthritis. Yep. yep. And and he discovered that by feeding his cows green apples. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. And the cows that had that ate the green apples, that, that, that were in the field that ate the green apples didn't have the arthritis that the cows who were in another field that didn't have the green apples oh i didn't
1: realize that we we, yeah we use apple cider vinegar like on a daily basis but i didn't i didn't realize that interesting
0: interesting uh that's an old family recipe that's come down through my family my family's been here in this country since the early 1600s yeah you mentioned that that's cool that you have that kind of background that's great yeah yeah, well, you know, the apple cider vinegar doesn't appeal to me much, but but for those with arthritis, my mother used to always two tablespoons with water or in her juice or mm-hmm. any way you can get it down. If you get two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar in you every day, yeah. um, you're it, it helps to diminish inflammation and that's all arthritis actually is. Yeah. All kinds of things. Same thing. Jim takes a shot glass of it every morning. Sometimes I hear him in there gagging in
1: the bathroom, but yeah, yeah it's, it's funny. We had something in Bridgewater, not Bridgewater, Woodbury, just the other day called Meander Down Main Street. And Eris and I gave out samples of elderberry syrup and fire cider. And I prefaced it with, I can't stand the way this stuff tastes, but I take it every day. And I'm a traveling teacher and I have kids coughing and sneezing on me all day long and I'm never sick. So, yeah, I'm a firm believer. And fire cider is, the basis is apple cider vinegar. So, yeah, I'm a firm believer in all that stuff.
0: You can always put local honey in it and that makes it a little easier to swallow. Yes, yes, yes. And the local honey will help you um <clears throat> with with allergies. Yeah. For yep. so long as it's local. Yeah. Yep. But but no there's there's a lot of stuff that has great validity to it and and of course and apple cider vinegar is one of those cures that I mean there's so many things that it'll it'll help you with it's unbelievable. Oh yeah, it's en- it's endless the list. Yeah. I yep, I agree with you. So I want to get back to yeah, Susan. that was, We went off on a tangent there, didn't we? Yep. <laughs> happens a lot. Um, so so she has led you on an amazing journey, mm-hmm. and and um, I would say that that the magic that she put into your life did help everybody in you know each in a different way, but did help each of you to to come to a a kind of peacefulness about what had happened to you, and it gave you all a new life, which is just spectacular.
1: Yeah, it did give us a new life because um, I would not be sitting here today having this this conversation with you if it wasn't for Susan. None of this would none of this would have happened. And we're all different people. I think I think we're all, we're all better people. I think, like I said before, it took Jim the longest to heal, but we've all come out of this. We've come out of this pretty well. And um, I'll, I will never reach the point where I'll say I'm glad what happened to us happened to us but we did deal with it in the best way that we could. And, you know, my mother always said, there is no growth without change. And mm-hmm. Jim always said that change is people's number one fear and change can be scary. It can be uncomfortable. It can be horrible, but it's really the only way to grow as a person is to have change. And, and we certainly have change in our life and we have certainly grown.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. But, 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 you know, had you lived in Brazil and, and owned a, a, a farm, you, you never would have written this book? No, I wouldn't have. No, absolutely not. Right. Yes. And I, you, you know, you might have written one about Brazil,
1: but. And that's true. kind of that's kind of how the whole thing began. We were, Aris and I re- wrote these great emails back and forth to people, you know, about our adventures in Brazil because it was very rural. It was very, very different than anywhere we'd ever been. That's kind of the, how the whole thing began. Um, but you're right. There would, it wouldn't be the book that we have now. We wouldn't be living in this cool, amazing house where we don't feel like we own the house. We feel like we're stewards of the house. And um, no, we have a pretty cool life, I have, I have to say. I, 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 I'll never forgive the Jose who did what he did to us, but um, mm-hmm. we, do have, we do have a cool life. And we have moved on and we have healed. Yes. And we and- bought our house as a place to heal. And what we especially love that it's now become a place of healing. You know, so much, so much healing goes on in this house, and we we're really proud of that fact.
0: Oh yeah, and it's just it's such it's a cozy place. It's it's not yeah. Of course, I, I it was summer when I was there, um, and and you know it it it's cozy. It's oh yeah,
1: like the wind is not yeah rattling through the walls or anything like that. No, it is yeah. And we have a dishwasher, and we're people are sometimes surprised <laughs> we have a dishwasher. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you don't pump it and bring it in and wash the dishes. So people
1: are very and it's funny we have a very old um stove from the eighteen nineties and when people come to the house they say, Oh, is that a functioning stove? And I always crack up like, No, there the real stoves in the garage Yes, that's a functioning stove. I think people think we have a modern one stashed someplace, but no, we it's not a yeah, yeah, it's 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 an old house, but we, we're not living here like like martyrs, no.
0: <laughs> you have indoor plumbing? Yes, yeah. yes no. we do. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's so exciting. And it it's, you know, her story is such, and, and I'm not going to spoil the ending because it is such a great ending. It's the kind of ending that um, this this book would make a great movie.
1: You know, as I was writing it, um, I always thought that. And it's funny, like when you're writing a book and we're trying to get it published and you're sending out query letters and you hit the point where you think, oh boy, this is never going to happen. At one point, Aris and I actually came up with all the different actors that we thought we, we should play, you know, the different people. Like, we thought Sharon Stone would be perfect as Laura the Intuitive. We've got different people uh-huh. for me. But it was very funny. I Right from the start, and a couple people have said that to me. Actually, a lot of people have said that to me. I always saw the, the um, book as a movie, and that would be like my dream come true. You know, you, of course, you've read The Secret with The Secret, you're supposed to have one of those outside the boxings. That would be so incredible that if it happened, you know, you'd be sure that um, you would believe in the whole idea of, um, um, you know, sending things out to the universe. And that would be my thing. If my book could ever become a movie, I would be the happiest woman in the world, <laughs> although I'm pretty happy right now.
0: Yeah, I'd say you definitely are not a downer. No, um, no, no. Now, the other day, you know, when, when we were going to connect, you said, oh, if I don't answer the call, I'm out getting mugwort. Yes. Um, <laughs> where, where do you harvest that?
1: Oh, I can't tell you. It's a top secret location. But what Aris and I do, we do, you, of course, you're familiar with smudging. We do yeah. a lot of smudging and we teach a lot of smudge stick classes. Now, a lot of people do smudging with state with sage, but sage is endangered. So Aris and I, instead, we use mugwort, which is invasive. And we figure it's great for smudging. And we're also you know, cutting down stuff that's invasive and shouldn't be here in Connecticut in the first place. So we have a top secret location in Woodbury that's also pesticide-free. And we wanted to get all. Oh, I think we have about nine bushels of it in the garage that's drying because um, we want to get it all in before the frost comes.
0: Yeah, we had one last night. I did anyhow.
1: Oh, okay. We, I, yeah, we. I don't think we did. I think tonight. Tonight's gonna be the night. We got all our plants in tonight.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's just. Um, and when you think. You know, going out and harvesting mugwort, or or cutting down the the mint, and you know, making sure that you do it after the dew is dried and and before the blooms come out, and the whole thing, it's it's a ritual, but it's it's a rich ritual. It is, and, and it 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 just it 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 sort of gives you a good feeling inside when you're doing stuff like that when you're when you're working with natural stuff, not alligator poop, right. but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the plants and and it's the the, the drying out of, of all the herbs and everything does make your house smell great, and you know it it's it's there's there's a lot of stuff about the things they did that that really add great great vibrancy to people who choose to to recognize it, learn it, and practice it within a reality that's so so. Um, technologically rich that sometimes we forget that uh, we are one with the earth, and that's that's another thing at least back then, they were able to walk barefoot and connect mm-hmm. with the earth the heartbeat of the earth and today, our feet are so protected that they don't get to make that contact and make that connection to the to the heartbeat of the earth. Um, Indians had lower blood pressure and they were healthier because they were walking barefoot on the earth and they were one with the earth. And therefore the, there was a greater sense of health to them. And today we've isolated ourselves so much for the, from the natural that, that our bodies just don't get that, that sustenance. And because of that, we're, we're more open to infections and all sorts of stuff.
1: Absolutely. Because I, you know, I mentioned that I'm a hands-on science teacher and I won't say where I was, but I taught a hands-on science class at a, um, a daycare recently And I couldn't believe it. Um, Eris is with me, my daughter. And when we went outside, the kids were playing not only on plastic grass, but they were playing on plastic dirt. And I thought, what what have we come to that kids are playing on plastic grass, you know, kind of like AstroTurf Uh and and plastic dirt. And in the same vein, you know that we have chickens at our house and we primarily have the chickens to eat ticks so that we don't get Lyme disease. And of course, the chickens lay eggs. But we've had people actually say to us, "Aren't you afraid to eat your, the eggs from your chickens?" And like, what, afraid to eat them? We like, we're like crazy about these eggs. They're free-range eggs, and we know exactly what our chickens are eating. But people, you know, for some reason, people have it in their heads that eggs from the grocery store are safer and better for you. And like, what does it happen when kids are playing on plastic dirt, and people are afraid to eat eggs from their own chickens? Like, what, what in the world's going on? You know, it's
0: like, <laughs> it's like nuts. <laughs> Well, your story absolutely spans the centuries. And um, I, I really, the name of the book is Acquiescence. I, I strongly, strongly urge people to to get it and read it because it's a fascinating story. And <clears throat> I have intentionally not gone into the really good stuff be- <laughs> because... Um, it would kind
1: of blow it, yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, why buy it if you know how it comes out? But... But you you do you do learn um, more of the hardships of Susan and her losses and how she avenged her losses and then how she she ended her her life. She didn't commit suicide, but she did end her life. That's true. Yes. Now, did you now
1: did you see Susan as being? Oh, I'm trying to get the word. Um, Maybe not a heroine. I
0: saw. Her- did you blame? Did you blame Susan for what she did? Like, did you think she was wrong? I think she was a martyr. Okay. And, and no, I would have done what she did much earlier than she did. So, okay. but but again, during the, those times, you couldn't because you wouldn't survive.
1: No, right, 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 right,
0: exactly. And so the choices that she made when she felt she had nothing left. There was nothing left to do.
1: She had no other choice. That, yeah, that's what I thought too. I was, I felt that way about her. Yeah, I know. I felt, felt she was. I don't know if I had. She, she was a strong woman, but she made the only choice that she could make based on things that happened to her and her family. Yes.
0: Oh without, yeah. Without and,
1: giving the rest of it away. Yes.
0: Yeah. No. And and I I don't think there. Well, the the legal system was a lot different back then. Mm-hmm. So so you know you didn't you didn't have a death in the family and call the coroner in, you just buried the dead gut out with your life. Oh Um, yes. Right. So, um, and, and it was interesting that, that of her children that were buried, there was one that was buried in another place. And the reason why Mm
1: -hmm. is very
0: interesting as well. So, um, it's a fascinating story. It really is riveting. Your story of going down to Brazil and then having to come back, um, amazing and the fact that you have two extraordinarily gifted and talented children and how they they because of your guidance and your husband's they they went through the whole thing and and came out of it healthier and richer in and of themselves as well your your son one of his things favorite things to do is to collect chairs yes
1: (laughs) (laughs) he's gonna love when he hears this but yes yes he does he i he really does have a Victorian share addiction and they're all <laughs> over our house. But yes, that's true. He's going to crack up when he hears that, but yes, it's very true. But yes. He also
0: makes beautiful jewelry out of forks, which is, yes. which is another gift and talent. So you've got two children that are just absolutely amazing and, and a husband that's, that's very talented and, and flows with everything. He's just, he's a mellow fellow. And, and I mean, this, this, this was, was quite a, shock to his system to have to go to Brazil and come back. Mm-hmm. But but his acceptance of of such an unusual circumstance in his home is amazing. And his his curiosity as well as yours to let's rip the wall down because I think there's something there. That, right?
1: That's very true. Because I was I think we had a group here just the other day and they wanted to know you know, how many years did it take you to to take down the kitchen fireplace? And I said, years? You clearly don't know Jim Urban. We had it done in a weekend. Yeah, you know, Yes, it took him another week, weekend to put up some, you know, put up some trim. But yeah, we had that down in a, in a weekend. And that's just how the way we, op- we operate about pretty much all things that we do. Yes.
0: Wow. One year when when my son was young, but he was he was in his he was 10, 12, 13. Uh, I, I always told him that I hid his Christmas presents in the secret room, mm-hmm. and one year he he decided to take a hammer and knock holes in all the walls to try to find the secret room. <laughs> we had one heck of a plaster job that we had to do. And, and at one <laughs> point, at one point, he had knocked a hole under a window. I said, "Use your head, John. That's an outside wall, and it's under a window. Where is the room?" I said, "It's a secret." <laughs> I had to give up and tell him where the room was because I was afraid he was going to destroy the house. (laughs) But, but I mean, you're, the house is amazing. Please people go and look at the website and check the house out because it is phenomenal. And once you've seen the house and read the book, you're in the story. There's no, there's no way out. It's
1: funny because we have some people see the house first and then read the book. But people say it's better if you read the book, read the book first, and then come and see the house because they can kind of visualize it. But yeah,
0: yeah, that would that would be my suggestion.
1: And we'd love but, to have you come. Yes.
0: Oh, it's I, I it's it's such a cool house, and there's such a nice feeling there, and I I think that's part of the whole thing. There is a a peacefulness and a tranquility that is there now mm-hmm. that probably wasn't there in as much when you moved in, but the more you got to know her and the more she accepted you, the more the house became yours.
1: I think that's, I think that's very true because in the beginning, I I didn't feel like it was our, it was our house. And, um, yeah, you're right. It took about a year for that to happen. And, uh, yeah, you're very, you're very astute. You're absolutely right. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're making me realize things that I didn't even realize, but, um, yeah, you're right. Now, this this conversation has given me, given me a lot to think about. Things that I didn't realize that went on. Yeah, they did go on. You're right. And I, I didn't realize it. Yeah.
0: Well, it's, it's, your story is amazing. Susan was amazing. And you are. Because um, I think that you're going to be educating a lot of people, not only to the fact that a haunting can be a very peaceful, beautiful experience,
1: and yeah, I think the word you're right. The word haunting, because I never use. I never know whether to use. I never say ghost because to me that just seems like a negative.
0: Okay, I've got to thank you. Oh, okay. And and I will send you the MP3 and thank you for such a great two hours.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Barbara. I loved it. Thank you very much. It went. It flew by. It did.
0: Good night now. This is Barbara DeLong, host of Nightlight Radio, inviting you to join me on a cosmic journey, exploring a metaphysical montage of spiritual material, covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between, including spiritual readings for those who seek enlightenment. Let Nightlight provide you with equal measure of light, love and laughter, insight, wisdom, and inspiration. Monday nights, 10 to 12 p.m. Eastern, right here on Studio B, Revolution Radio, at freedomslips.com. Who are we? Where do we come from? Are you curious about the origins of the human race? Join me, Gavin McCall, and a
1: variety of guests on Ancient Humans, where we decipher world events, explore scientific